Turn, if you would, to Jude once again. Jude verse 14. This is what I would say is the final sermon on false teaching for a little while. We get into some exciting positive stuff um, next week. And then we're going to head toward Habakkuk next and then Galatians. So we'll get back into Judaizers and all that soon enough, I know. Uh, But... uh, Yes, so we will be in verses 14 through 19 this morning. Let's pray before we get into God's holy word. Father, teach us from your word this morning. May we see Christ and find him to be more attractive than the allures of the world. Be with your people by your spirit this this morning and go with us as we leave to our respective um, vocations into the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, Jude 14 through 19. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. This is God's Word. You may be seated. If you recall from last week, and this is something that stuck out to me from last week, is the whole notion of that when we call out false teachers, when we remove false teachers from our midst, we call out and remove people we love in general, people, family members, beloved people who have been in our midst, united to us, and that is a painful process. It, it hurts. If it doesn't hurt, when we cast a person from our midst, um, we have a wrong attitude. We have a wrong spirit. It should be almost like the removal of a limb, like an amputation. You can picture a physician kind of going into to the office or to, to a room and, and convincing the patient, we have to remove your leg. For your overall health, we have to remove your leg. And, and of course, I mean, who wouldn't be in denial in a situation like that? I personally would like to keep all my limbs. <laughs> but with patience and kindness, the doctor has to make it plain. Look, look. The infection is too severe, blood flow is too weak, nerve damage is is too severe. We have to amputate or it will get worse. So I kind of picture Jude, I call this Dr. Jude, because I picture Jude like that doctor. He's coming into the room and he's convincing us this needs to happen, this amputation needs to happen. Look at who these people are, look at what they're doing to you. Three times in this passage he describes the corruption of these people, 
verse 14, it was about these that Enoch prophesied. In verse 16, these are grumblers and malcontents. In verse 19, these cause divisions. So he's talking about these things. He's giving us this diagnosis, diagnosis and he recommends amputation. He desires for us to be warned and to take the proper actions to cut them off before infection spreads. Jesus uses similar imagery in John 15. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire. So it is with these false teachers. So the first reason that Jude gives here that we need to accept the painful reality of amputation from the body is the fruitlessness of false teachers. Verse 14, again. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. In high school one time I had to write a paper, and it was only like a page. I had to do it in a half an hour or something. And I, I was not that into academics anyway, and I was not in the mood. So I wrote this paper, and I wrote the word America as many times as possible to just fill up as much space as possible. And I brought it to my teacher, and he, he called me out on it. He said, you just wrote America just to fill up space. So I had to go back and do it. It's fu- funny, though, in this passage, in this verse 15, Jude repeats the same word four times. And unlike me, he actually has a good reason for it. But you can see in verse 15, to execute judgment and convict all the ungodly of their ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You get the word? (laughs) Ungodly. You get the point, I think. These people are ungodly. They are irreverent towards God in all that God has shown himself to be. They are impious in word and in deed. Ungodliness makes up, and you can see this in the text, it makes up their identity and their actions and their mannerisms and their speech. It is fruitlessness or bad fruit which Jesus will come to judge. I think I've told you before that as a younger man, God has by and large cured me of this, but I had a lead foot. I drove too fast. And I have had to go more than once before a judge to receive my uh, conviction for my traffic violations. You know, you're flying down the road in the middle of the night, singing Free Bird by Leonard Skinner, and, and then there's lights in the rear of you. And, and you thought you were getting away with it, but you're not. And then it becomes more and more a reality, because then you have to go before this judge and say the word, Guilty. And then you have to go to the clerk and pay a hefty fine, and it really starts to hit home. I was not getting away with it. The ungodly go merrily, sometimes their whole life through, thinking they're getting away with it, transgressing God's law. 
But, but every crime will be brought before the judgment seat. It will be brought to light, and every last one will be, he says, not only judged, but convicted. Christ's conviction rate is 100%. There's no cold cases, no mistrials, no guilty party ever goes free. Jude says he comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. It's a near direct quote from the book of Enoch, which we've discussed several times in Second Peter and Jude. And the quote from Enoch goes something like this. There's different versions of Enoch, but says, And behold, 10,000 holy ones to execute judgment on them and to destroy the impious and to contend with all flesh concerning everything that the sinners and the impious have done and wrought against him. It's weird there, Jude, Jude says, Enoch prophesied. That, that might throw us off a little bit. It may seem like Jude thinks that Enoch should be a part of the canon of Scripture. But Enoch, we know, is a work written between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, and I think generally every first century Jew knew that as well. So what do we make of this? Um, should we include Enoch in the canon of Scripture? Calvin thought essentially that this was a quote uttered by Enoch that was handed down orally through the generations. Um, and Reformation but Study Bible kind of says well, that, that may be true, which it may be true, I don't know. Uh, my opinion, and we've discussed this before, is that Jude is merely using a, a well-known work of the time to make a point. And the reason he calls it prophecy is because it's framed as prophecy within the story. And it really plays perfectly into his point. So in Enoch, Enoch sees this vision of the coming day of judgment, and it's identified, this vision is identified as, quote, not for this generation, but for a distant generation that will come. So essentially what Jude is saying is, we're the generation. This is when the Lord will come to, to judge these people. The false teachers in your midst perfectly fulfill Enoch's prophecy. They are impious. They are headed for destruction. They will receive the judgment of the Lord. And you are a latter generation. You are part of the last days when the judgment will come. This word judgment, we talk about it a lot. We say the judgment. But that's kind of amorphous term, really. And it really feels far off, like this distant thing. So I think it's, it's really interesting to think about what that means. And, and Michael's been bringing us through the Psalms, and the Psalms have such wonderful imagery. And one of the images the Psalms use, and a couple of them, is that the judgment of God is like a cup. In Psalm um, 75, 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Psalm 11, 5 and 6, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Now in alcoholic beverages like mixed drinks, oftentimes the, the alcohol will sink to the bottom and the last drink is really rather stiff. And in the Bible, we see, in a sense, that teachers and, and people who, who purport to be shepherds of the flock, 
drink the cup last. They're, they're, the wrath of God will be especially stiff for those people. And that's why, as painful as it is, we must amputate false teachers from the body of Christ. In, in the final analysis, to borrow from Dr. Sproul, there are two kinds of people in the world. There's those people who will drink the cup for themselves and those people for whom it has been drunk already. When people walk in the way of wickedness, following their own foolishness and the deception of false teachers, they will drink the wrath of God dry. But the frightening thing is there's never a day when that cup goes dry. Because God is infinite in His holiness, and He has been offended by sin. And that's a debt that can never be repaid. Jesus, in the garden before his death, prayed, If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. That cup is that frothy cup of God's wrath. The cup that Jesus drained at the cross was the cup of God's wrath. I don't want to say never, because that's always scary, but I don't think you'll ever hear me. If we ever do a Good Friday service, go through, you know, the... The, all the painful things that happened to Jesus, the whipping and the flogging and the crown, because in crucifixion, thousands of people have been crucified. One person has drunk the cup of God's wrath. That's what the cross is about, is the cup of God's wrath. And it was not, as we see, possible for the cup to pass from Jesus. There was one way for Jesus to atone for the sins of people, and that's to drain the cup of God's wrath dry on their behalf. That's why Jesus became a man, because only a man could pay for man's sins. But that sacrifice had to be made also by God himself, because God is the only thing pure enough to repay an infinite debt. So that's what's at stake in this whole issue here of false teaching, is the gospel. The teaching we believe, the teaching we follow, means the difference between drinking the cup ourselves for an eternity or drinking the cup of blessing through the one who drank the cup of wrath on our behalf. Bad doctrine is a damning gangrene, and it cannot be ignored in the body of Christ. Now, the second reason this amputation, as I'm calling it, is necessary in the body is that these false teachers are uh, dissatisfied with God's house rules. Most of us in this room have been, at the moment, all but one, have been teens before, or you, many of you have raised teens. So we've all been on one side or the other of having disgruntled people in the house right? You know, it's not fair. I want to do what I want to do, and I want to do it my own way. These false teachers are, are not unlike disgruntled teens. They are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. They're grumblers and malcontents like the Israelites, moaning and groaning through the wilderness as God provides for them time and time again. They're following their own sinful desires. 
Christ is not king to them, but Christ is an oppressive killjoy. They would rather follow those things which captivate their desires at the moment than submit to any sovereign. And they show favoritism to gain an advantage. Disgruntled teens are the best at this kind of manipulation, but winning brother and sister over, right? But not for like relationship or friendship, but to, to, to accomplish their own agenda. The common theme here, though, is dissatisfaction with the way God has ordered his kingdom. In, this, in essence, they elevate themselves above God and, and humanity's age-old problem of you can be like God. The longing of, of every one of us, of every sinner, is autonomy, self-regulation, and the freedom to lay our own boundaries. Um, I was, before having kids, I was a fully convinced Calvinist. I believed the doctrines of total depravity and the doctrines of original sin with an unshakable confidence. But, but these doctrines take on a whole new freshness when you have kids. I was shocked by the depravity and how early it came on in these little rebels and rascals. And, and to shock a Calvinist by sin is a pretty good feat. <laughs> Vody Bauckham says, one of the reasons God makes human babies small is so they won't kill their parents in their sleep. <laughs> from, the, from the day we're born, we strive for personal autonomy. We grumble, we complain, we manipulate, all to get our own way. We scrap and fight to put our pet idols up on the shrine of our own hearts. The way Paul puts it in Romans is, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. If you think about that statement carefully, I always think when I read that about atheists, right? But here, Jude applies the same exact attitude to professing Christians and, in fact, teachers in the church. They do not honor God or give thanks. They are grumblers and malcontents. These must be removed from our midst because they're not Christians. They claim Christ while proclaiming the doctrine of the devil, cultivating discord and dissatisfaction within the body of Christ. And for the True false teacher, the genuine false teacher, the painful process of amputation is oftentimes our only option. Now, the apostles warned us that these people would come, uh, which leads us to our final reason that false teachers must be amputated from the body. In verse 17, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in this last time in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. <clears throat> one such prediction comes from Paul um, in first Timothy chapter four, verses one and two. <clears throat> now the spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's quite a statement. Deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. What do you suppose teachings of demons are? 
you know, necromancy, Satan worship, sorcery, black magic. Here's what he says in verse 3, that they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. It's pretty subtle, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't have called that a doctrine of the demons, but Paul does. The subtlety of the devil's lies are extraordinarily dangerous. Most of you have probably read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. Um, if you haven't, it's a fascinating book. But the, the whole book is, is these letters from Uncle Screwtape, who is a demon, and a more experienced demon to his less experienced nephew named um, Wormwood. And Wormwood has this case, this man who he's supposed to make sure he's damned, I guess. And this, this man has become a Christian, but then he's kind of at this point that I'm about to quote, He's kind of in a bit of a backsliding um, stage. So Uncle Screwtape writes to Wormwood, My dear Wormwood, obviously you are making excellent progress. My only fear is least in attempting to hurry the patient you awaken him to a sense of his real position. For you and I who see that the, the position as it really is must never forget how totally different it ought to appear to him. We know that we have introduced a change of direction in his course which is already carrying him out of his orbit around the enemy. The enemy is God. But he must be made to imagine that all the choices which have affected this change, of course, are trivial and revocable. He must not be allowed to suspect that he is now, however slowly, heading right away from the sun on a line which will carry him to the cold and dark of utmost space. For this reason, I am almost glad to hear that he is still a churchgoer and a communicant. I know there are dangers in this, but anything is better than that he should realize the break he has made with the first months of his Christian life. As long as he retains externally the habits of a Christian, he can still be made to think of himself as one who has adopted a few new friends and amusements, but whose spiritual state is much the same as it was six weeks ago. And while he thinks that, we do not have to contend with the explicit repentance of definite and fully recognized sin, but only with his vague thought of, though uneasy, feeling that he hasn't been doing very well lately. It doesn't take much adjustment to adjust our orbit to where we fly outside the orbit of the sun. In Jude, the lie is that God is gracious, and therefore we may do as we wish, and he'll forgive our sins. In Galatians, which we'll get to in a few months, the lie is God will only forgive us if we do certain things. In both cases, um, really, there's subtle changes, but there's preservation of elements of truth as well. And those changes would send us drifting off into another gospel. Jude calls us to remember that we are to expect such people who scoff at the truth and follow their own desires. They, they scoff at the truth. You believe God will judge humanity? They would say, how, how arcane. Your conception of morality is so old-fashioned. I thought Christians were about grace. The apostles warned us that these people would be prevalent in the last days, which 
the last days is the days between Christ's ascension and his second coming. We are in the time of false teachers. So, like a surgeon telling the man who has a compromised leg that the nerve damage is too severe, Jude warns us that those teachers whom you know, who you respect, who you love, who are teaching you these things, he says in verse 19, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. He's essentially saying to them, I know it hurts to separate yourself from them, but he says, you have to see that their manipulation is causing division within the body of Christ. They, they love the things of the flesh, the things of the world, and they do not have the Spirit of God working in their minds and hearts to rightly divide the words of God. They follow instead the spirit of this evil age, and they must be removed. So those words, removed, amputate, are harsh words. That's a harsh message. And the message really was essentially the same thing last week, and my mom was here, and she was, she's very wise. It's Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. After the service, my mom was asking me, practically, what does this look like to remove false teachers from our midst or to, to separate ourselves from false teachers? And that's a really great, great question. How do we go about the amputation process? Because if we go around lopping off limbs for every blemish and freckle, we're going to cause a lot more damage than help. And the answer, of course, is more complicated than we'd like to admit, but I'll try to give us some biblical principles to guide us here. Um, first, we have to know that from the time from now till Jesus comes back, there will be wolves among the sheep and tares among the wheat. That's a reality. This is a problem the church has always dealt with and will continue to deal with, so it's something we need to think about. The second principle that I think will help us here is we have to realize that taking the step of removal or amputation is a biblical reality. It's something we're called to do. Paul warns Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but not denying its power. And then he says, avoid such people. There are many other texts that we could go to to prove that, but the step of removal or separation is a biblical requirement. With that in mind, though, the third principle we should keep in mind is that this should not be a witch hunt. We don't go nitpicking at every little theological misstep or moral blemish or character flaw. Please don't. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. We, we don't cry heretic because a teacher has a different understanding of the millennium than we do. Teachers and preachers and elders are flawed and sinful under-shepherds of Christ, and chief shepherd Jesus Christ is the only perfect shepherd. Christ's blood covers the sins of repentant teachers, even as he does everyone else. 
So we must, in this whole process, be gracious, patient, and eager to see change. If you like the idea of a witch hunt, you're probably not the person to confront a teacher about problems. Seasons of rebuke ought to grieve us deeply. And if it does come to that painful time when amputation is inevitable, the whole church ought to weep over it. The fourth principle here I think is helpful is essentially we need to guard the front door. As James says, we should uh, not many should become teachers. That's a calling from God to teach and shepherd the flock of God. There's a reason for the office of elder and the qualifications given. Uh, all of the qualifications given for elder are, are just basic Christian character qualities except one, able to teach. James says that teachers will be judged with a greater strictness. And I've noticed here's how most guys become pastors these days is that a young man shows some promise or just some interest and, well, let's let's sign him up as youth, youth pastor. And he does that for three or four years and, well, the, the next guy's stepping out, so I'm gonna, he's going to step up. But is there any sense of call there? Is there any vetting of his ability to teach the trustworthy word as taught? Is there any laying on of hands or inquiry into the work of the Holy Spirit in his life and ministry. There's a lot of heartache that could be prevented if the pulpit were guarded with more care. Fifth principle here, biblical principle to help us understand how to go about this process is that we need to be Bereans. The weight is not all on teachers and preachers. The congregation is to hold teachers accountable according to the word. Paul says in Galatians, I'm astonished that you've turned so quickly to another gospel. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who hate have their powers of Discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And Paul tells Timothy in in 1 Timothy, train yourself for godliness. We need to be Bereans. You, You all need to be Bereans to be studying the word of God to keep your teachers accountable. And then sixth and the final one here is is in terms of process texts in fact in in the way we actually carry out such cases of of church discipline against false teachers the first text that comes to mind is of course matthew 18 15 through 17 if your brother sins against you go and tell him his fault one-on-one between you and him alone if he listens to you you have gained your brother but if he does not listen take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So so that's the process. Go to him one-on-one. Go to him with a witness. If he won't listen, bring him before the church. And if he still won't listen, cast him out. Another text is Titus 3, 10 through 11. 
As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So the Bible's given us processes for dealing with these situations. We must always remember that the threefold purpose of church discipline, one is the glory of God, two is the purity of the church, and three, the restoration of the sinner. It should always be our prayer every time we go into these type of situations that the false teacher would repent and turn from his sins and lay hold of the true faith once for all delivered to the saints. If they won't repent, though, we have to let them go. Though we feel that, that pain, the loss of healing, maybe we feel the, the phantom limb, we can take confidence in what the Apostle John has said, that they who have gone out from us who are, are not really of us. So the casting out of a false teacher, that, that can feel like the removal of one of our own limbs. But the purity of Christ's body, it, it requires that kind of pruning. Dr. Jude has given us ample reasons that this type of thing has to take place for the purity of the church. Because these people do not bear the fruit of godliness. They hate God's law and they corrupt the purity of the body. And I believe, and we see this in the letters to the to, to the churches in Revelation, that God rewards the faithfulness of a body that, that maintains the purity of Christ's bride, even at great personal loss. Amen.